Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Father, we ask again for your wisdom and your discernment as we talk about um, just a variety of different things that deal with theology and deal with discernment. And Lord, we, we pray for your wisdom. Lord, I also pray that our discussions with each other would be fruitful, would be productive, and um, all of it would bring us to a deeper understanding of who you are and a deeper love for you. In your name, amen. Well, it has been fascinating since our, our time together last week, all of the different discussions that have happened. Um, a number of people have talked to me and a little bit of buzz with each other, and that, that's great. I, I hope that we are discussing some of the principles and um, discussing it in a way where we can have honest, truthful discussions with each other. And um, that's, that's a healthy thing. I think that's a good sign in a body of Christ when we can discuss things that even maybe we would disagree on in a positive way, in a loving way, and that's, that's part of the goal is to get us talking about these things, to get us discussing what truth is, and hopefully to get us thinking through what the Bible says about some of these things um, in a variety of different ways. Last week we spent a little bit of time just in background information. We almost got through it all, not quite, but we talked about the author, and we talked about the storyline, and, and hopefully some of those things were just good background. For me, understanding where the author was coming from, it was very helpful and um, very key. And then we also talked about um, setting a foundation for discernment, and do we evaluate fiction, or does fiction even matter? Do we just leave it be? And we realize that, yes, fiction still teaches. In fact, it's a, a more powerful teaching tool sometimes because it bypasses um, the 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 intellectual mind and comes in through the, the arts and through the heart. And so it is a, it's a powerful tool, which is why Christ used parables. It's why things like Pilgrim's Progress and the Chronicles of Narnia are such powerful tools, because um, those are reaching a different part of us. But we also realized that um, the, the book's intent is to teach theology. It is to, his intent is to teach his kids truths about God. And so we, we need to evaluate that, and both the things that he, he says that um, we, we like and the things that maybe we would want to evaluate with Scripture. And, and in any book written by man, there's probably going to be things on both sides of that, but it's important to test everything, to hold on to the good. Um, then we looked at the foundation of, of truth, and um, if there's anything I hope you got last week, that was it. That, that the foundation is God's word. It is the ultimate authority. It is the, the basis of all truth. It is the basis of all theology. And it is the final test of everything we read and everything we believe. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so if we hold firm to that, then, then I'm good. That, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing. I do want to finish the, the background today, and then we'll move into um, discussing some items in the book. And... That's always a challenge. What, what do you discuss? The things you agree with first? The things you disagree with first? Do you alternate them? And, and I've just chosen a way. We're going to talk about the things that I think the book does well in first. And then we're going to talk about some of the concerns that I would have biblically and theologically with some principles. And whether the author intended them or not, I, I don't know him personally, but how some things I know are being taken in the general populace. Um, that are important to talk about. And so that's the, the format that we're going to go through. We're not going to get through all that today. Just, just warning you, um, but we'll see. Did you get a handout today? Pay, one page, right? No, yes, there's more. 
it's a new handout, yes. Steve has some, Steve, if you want to make sure, and more are printing. Um, I didn't realize it, but the printer had run out of paper. And so I went in to grab them out of the printer, and there was just like 50. And it's weird that it needs paper to print, but it does. Okay, back into the background information. The question that we didn't answer that I wanted to throw out for discussion today, and, and I do want discussion, but does theology matter? Does the study of theology matter? Yes. Anyone say no? I have some appointments. This No. Just, um, okay, so then the, the, the real question is, and what I want to throw out, why does theology matter? Why does the study of theology matter? Because... You know, some people think theology and think, oh, that's dry or that's, that's academic. We have to take a class on that. Maybe there will be a test later. That would be nice. But um, why does theology matter? Any ideas? <laughs> I would hope you would have an answer for that, Fred. <laughs> I got lots of ideas, but I'll tell you. Give me one. Sure. Not, not listening to good theology. Okay. Good. I would hope that you would support theology since you're teaching a class <laughs> that I've interrupted on theology right now. Cookie. Absolutely. Could you guys hear that on this side? To be able to know and worship God, I need an accurate picture of who He is. Good. Lorraine. Absolutely. Good. Other thoughts? Carl. I'm not sure I expressed it really well, but if you, if you want to come to God and talk to him or worship him or honor him, it has to be about the way he really is. Otherwise, you know, he doesn't, you would have no enjoyment in that or no pleasure. If somebody worshiped me or praised me for being a good race car driver, <laughs> There is a NASCAR race on today. I'll look for you. <laughs> Great point, though. Great point, though. Um, good. One of our, our high schoolers that are in here, I know that you guys have, we've preempted your class, too. Actually, we didn't. Andrew made that decision. Um, I'd love to hear from one of you. Why do you think theology is important? Or have you ever thought about it? <laughs> Shana, go for it, Shana. Okay, foundation is, is is absolutely essential. We could we could spend several weeks on just why theology matters, and um, I, I just want to give a, a couple of points because I think this is an important again foundation far beyond the book The Shack or any other book we read. This is essential to, to how we live our Christian lives. And Fred, thank you for nodding. That's why this is so important to me. And so it just it gives us a foundation to live by. 
Um, I, I listed in there, again, this is not the author's words. This is someone that read the book and um, shows you a little bit of how some people are taking it and why it's good to talk about. I don't doubt that the book has some theological errors in it, but love is not a theological error and is the litmus test for good theology. And from what I understand, this book demonstrates that love well. Any issues with that statement? Again, this is not from the book, so please don't, don't critique the book by this. This is someone reading the book. Now, the book does focus on God's love and gives a beautiful picture of God's love. But is that the litmus test for good theology? No. Good theology includes God's love, but it includes a lot of different things. What is the litmus test for good theology? Scripture. Scripture. That's the foundation from last week, and that's, we're going to keep coming back to that. Scripture is the foundation. Um, Erickson and Christian Theology, this has nothing to do with the book The Shack. Again, this is just general on theology because I'm on that soapbox right now. Um, Erickson wrote a book called Christian Theology. It's, it's, it's a systematic theology, which if you don't in your family library somewhere have a, system the, a systematic theology, I would recommend either Erickson's or Grudem's, and you should have one. It's, it's, wonderful, it's a wonderful study tool. But Erickson, who wrote one of these thick books that you don't necessarily read straight through, it's more of a reference, I mean, you can, it's great, but um, it's, it's, you have to reread a lot of sections, said this, it is not sufficient to have a warm, positive, affirming feeling towards Jesus. One must have correct understanding and belief, which several of your comments about theology came up with. I just want to list a few points. Do I have four bullet points there on your handout? Yes. yes. Just comment real quick on Grudem's and Erickson's. I, I took a theology class and had to go buy one of those little human you know, books. And, but when I started reading it, it's really accessible. It's not yeah. super dense. So it's so wonderful. They are probably two of the most used books in my library. Yeah. Um, and they're readable, and if you have a question on any sort of theology, you can go to them. Keep in mind, they're written by men. There are things I disagree with in both of those books. There are things they disagree with each other on, and that comes back to reading with discernment, even something like a systematic theology, um, and, and evaluating it with scripture, but they are almost, for the most part, right on, I think, with scripture, and they use scripture as their support. So anything they say, you can just open your Bible and check it out. So, but thank you. The, they are both wonderful tools. I narrowed it down to four different reasons why theology matters. This is not an all-inclusive list, but more a list that I thought was more pertinent to our discussion. And so th this list could be expanded and whole lessons could be done on this and weeks and weeks but um, the first point of why theology matters is it gives us a right view of God. It gives us a right view of God. And several of you mentioned that if we have a false view of God, you cannot have a true relationship with him. Does that make sense? Carl, your example was great. If our, if our view of Carl is that he's a race car driver and, and rich, 
and, uh, <laughs> and, and that's what he does, then, then, and we can have relationship with that, and we can talk about racing, and we can, but is it true relationship if it's not really Carl? I would argue it is not. It is, it is a false relationship. Um, if, if you suddenly found out that your spouse had all these deep, dark secrets that you didn't know about, maybe another family, Would that affect your ability to be in relationship with them? <laughs> yeah, because, okay, and it doesn't even have to be something on that scope if, if our view of somebody is so false. And, I, and I've seen people that do this and that, that present this whole view of themselves that is this, this pristine, perfect view, and then behind the scenes, they're nothing like that. And, and people might say, oh, I have a great relationship with them. Well, they have a great relationship with the mask of them, but they don't have a relationship with them. And we understand that on a human level, but the same is true of God. If I have a, a, an inaccurate view of God and who he is, then my relationship with God is based on a lie. And it is not relationship. And eventually that will break down and we will be left wanting and wondering where our God is because we never really knew him. That makes sense? Theology matters. Theology matters. It gives us a right view of God. Second point, a good theology is essential for salvation. It is essential for salvation. And I'm not talking all the finer points and all the, the non-essentials, but when we come to a view of who God is and who Christ is and his work on the cross, we have to get those right because it is essential for salvation. In Galatians chapter 1, a book that we're studying in our home group, Paul is direct about people that were teaching falsehoods about the gospel. Um, throughout the whole thing, and at one point he even confronts, confronts Peter, which is a very interesting read if you read Galatians chapter 2. But in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 8, I don't know if I put those in there or not. Oh, okay, very nice. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And understand, this was about something that we might think is a finer point of theology. And the Judaizers had come along and were, were telling these Gentile Christians that to truly be saved, they, they also needed to be circumcised. And so they were adding something to the gospel. And now the people still believed in Christ, but they were adding something to the gospel and giving a false view of who Christ was and really turning salvation into salvation by works rather than salvation by faith. That's the core issue of Galatians. Because if you have to do anything else, if it's not by grace, the grace of God alone, then it isn't salvation. Let me keep on reading. Which is really no gospel at all. When I first read that, I too thought, wow, he's, he's being really, he's going overboard here. But when you think about it, it is at the, the, the heart of the gospel. It is so vital. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, which we have in God's word, let him be eternally condemned. This is harsh language. Yeah, oh. 
theology matters. And in this case, a bad theology was compromising salvation, and Paul, that, that is why Paul had to handle it so directly. It is that important. Um, fourth point there, the fourth bullet point, good theology protects us from false teaching. A couple of you mentioned that. Um, if, if we don't have a good sense of our theology, then we don't really know what's true or not true when we hear it. And so it's hard to be discerning if we haven't studied theology. So good theology protects us from false teaching. Finally, good theology, or why theology matters, what we believe directly affects how we feel and act. What we believe directly affects how we feel and act. It can be really easy to separate theology from actions because theology is just an academic exercise. And the practical, you know, that's just the practical. How we live flows from what we believe. They can never be separated. So many times we see them separated. We see people in Christian circles that study theology and know the theology backwards and forward and know good theology but if it hasn't infiltrated into their actions, what are they really doing? They're giving Christ a bad name. They're giving Christianity a bad name. They're giving the church a bad name. Theology affects our actions. Well, oftentimes people will listen to information, like theological points, and they'll put it down like so much news like they get from the newspaper. It doesn't become part of the thing that they use Yeah. It's not something they truly believe within their own heart that's part of what's stuck in their mind. Never gets to their worldview. Which is a little bit of the point we were making earlier today about examining ourselves. And if we don't get down to taking biblical principles and, and applying them directly to our lives, we're the guy in James that looks in the mirror and sees a mess and says, oh, I'm fine, and doesn't do anything about it. Part of this, if you think of the inverse, what we believe directly affects how we feel and act. We think of that on the positive, but the same is true on the negative. If I have a wrong view of, of God and if I have a wrong view of theology, I pretty much can give myself license to sin. It's really nice, but not really. And so theology is essential. Um, so that's the end of the background information. Any questions? I know there's a whole lot of other reasons why theology matters, but um, we only have so much time before Fred's going to take his class back. <laughs> so many weeks. <laughs> um, and so as I put there at the bottom, we're going to attempt to look at the assertions of the shack with discernment. And we're going to look at a lot of assertions. Some that, um, I, I, like I said, some that I, I think are, are right in line with Scripture and some that I would ask us to compare with Scripture and ask the question, is this in line with scripture, as we should do any book that we, we take. Um, our, our goal is not to criticize each other. Our goal is not to tear the author apart, um, but to look at the truth claims and evaluate them honestly with scripture and hold on to the good and avoid those things that are not good. I wanted to start with some of the things that I agree with the book and that I believe line up with scripture. 
And I know at this point we're delving into all kinds of different opinions. And so I, I'm going to share what my study has, has come up with and several other people. I've read a, a number of people on this and um, no, we've, we've been discussing this. But it's important to understand, okay, can we evaluate the truth claims in this book and evaluate them honestly with scripture? The first one that, that I think the book does well that's there is it doesn't sugarcoat evil. And what I mean by that is it takes suffering seriously rather than just minimizing it and saying we should get past it. Suffering happens, right? Tragedy happens. And I've seen all kinds of different ways of handling tragedy. I've seen this approach that, well, you should just get over it. How well does that work? No, it, it, it's hard, and, and the reality is, is when we go through deep personal tragedy, there is a deep process of learning how to trust God, of forgiveness, and it is a hard process. It is not something you do in five minutes. And, and I, I've seen a variety of different things, but one of the things I, I think the book does well is it, it recognizes tragedy as tragedy. It recognizes that there is pain and tragedy and a process that has to be worked through. And in fact, that's the author's intent, is to show his journey of trying to work through that. I, I gave a quote there from the book. The tragedy had also increased the rift in Mac's own relationship with God. But he ignored this growing sense of separation. Instead, he tried to embrace a stoic, unfeeling faith. And even though Mac found some comfort and peace in that, it didn't stop the nightmares where his feet were stuck in the mud and his soundless screams could not save his precious Missy. The bad dreams were becoming less frequent and laughter and moments of joy were slowly returning, but he felt guilty about these. And you see a picture of a man that is truly hurting, that has been touched or, or impacted by evil and that is really struggling with how to make sense of that. And, and I appreciate that in, in, the, in a world where we, we want easy fixes to everything, I appreciate that this is not an easy fix. That is, it is a difficult process. You know, I, I hear some of the same things in David in the Psalms. David in the Psalms was not all everything's great. He always came back to trusting in God. That is where everything should always come back to. And, and that's what we'll talk about further in the book. But in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? This is a man in turmoil. This is not a, a happy-go-lucky man. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O my Lord, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. And then here's where the psalmist always goes and here's where we must go. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. And so the book tries to capture that sense, that, that sense of how long, O oh Lord, but then I, I need to trust in your unfailing love. On the things on this list that we're talking through, we will move these, through these a little bit quicker than we'll move through some of the concerns, um, primarily because when there's broad agreement, there's 
not as much to talk about. So, um, and then in the, the concerns, we'll, we'll look a little bit deeper and um, explore those a little bit. Second thing that, that um, the book does well on, it, it focuses on God meeting us in our suffering. God is not absent in our pain, but meets us. And over and over, the author makes the point of, I didn't leave you in your pain and suffering. I've been here all along. The question is, are you responding to me? Um, and that, that's a, as I've worked with a lot of people through a lot of different things, that's a deep struggle. Because we feel like God has abandoned us. And we go with those feelings so many times, but the truth of the matter, God has not abandoned us. His love has not abandoned us. You see a couple quotes there. Um, McKinsey, I know that your heart is full of pain and anger and a lot of confusion. Together, you and I will get around to some of that while you're here. But I also want you to know that there's much more going on than you could imagine or understand, even if I told you. As much as you are able, rest in what trust you have in me, no matter how small, okay? And you see God attempting to, to illustrate to him that he's always been there and that they'll work through it. But also that there's a deeper plan that God has that may not have anything to do with Mackenzie. Um, so the, the book focuses on meeting us in our suffering. Towards the end of the book, there's a, a whole chapter on forgiveness man-to-man um, or person-to-person, um, horizontal forgiveness. And, and the book does a good job of describing forgiveness to each other. If you were here for our ser- our, the two weeks on forgiveness, you would read that chapter and, and it would be very familiar territory because he's, he's expanding on just familiar teaching on forgiveness and the idea that it's turning over something to God rather than dealing with it ourselves and, and releasing it to God. And I, I put in there a quote from that chapter of where God is, is helping Mac forgive. I don't think I can do this, Mac whispered. I want you to, and this is God answering. Forgiveness is first for you, the forgiver, answered Papa, to release you from something that will eat you alive, that will destroy your joy and your ability to love fully and openly. Illustrating that forgiveness is, is about my, my giving something to God and releasing it so that it will not eat me alive any, any further. Two other points. Um, the book attempts to deal with the sovereignty of God, which is very difficult for any book, let alone a piece of fiction. But um, I really thought he did a, he, he wrestled with the idea of the sovereignty of God um, and, and some of the aspects of that very well. As he um, tried to grapple with two truths that we all grapple with, that we can have discussions about, that God is in control of all things, or that God is sovereign over all things, but that God does not cause people to sin, which we know is true biblically. And so he attempts to deal with both of those, and, and he attempts to um, put those together, never really um, tries to, to come to a, a complete theological conclusion, but um, it's, a, it's a fascinating discussion. 
and I think he does a good job of, of looking at various aspects of that discussion. I didn't put any quotes for that because that's just woven through just a lot of discussion points. One other part that I, I really appreciated, and th there's probably more because th as I reread parts of the book, every page just has different concepts um, that, that make you think and that, that need to be evaluated with scripture. But the idea of integrating relationship with God into everything. For those of you that have been through the youth program when I was there, the circle. That, that God is to be a part of every part of our lives. Everything we do is the, for the glory of God, not just one or two things. I put a quote in there that as, as Mac is talking to um, the Trinity about this, if you put God at the top, um, speaking of a list of priorities, what does that really mean and how much is enough? How much time do you give me before you can go on about the rest of your day? The part that interests you so much more. Papa again interrupted. You see, Mackenzie, I don't just want a piece of you and a piece of your life. Even if you were able, which you are not, to give me the biggest piece, that is not what I want. I want all of you and all of every part of you in your day. Jesus now spoke again. Mac, I don't want to be the first among a list of values. I want to be the center of everything. And I think I've shared the circle even in a sermon the idea that the circle is the kingdom of God and everything we do is to be about our one priority. Um, our walk with God in the kingdom is not our first priority, it is our only priority. And everything else is to, to fit within that. And um, so you, you, see, you see these things coming out on, on different pages. I want to get to the next section, at least to the first point of the next section as well. Otherwise we will run out of time next week and won't get to anything. Those are just some of the things that I, that I thought the author grappled with and I thought his theology was correct on biblically. Um, there's some concerns that we also need to look at and to say, okay, what, what do these things say and what does Scripture say about them? Uh, the first concern that I would have is the author, I believe, tends to have a low view of Scripture, a low view of the Bible. Let me read the quote from pages 67 and 68. In seminary, he had been taught that God had completely stopped, and this is talking about Mac, he had been taught that God had completely stopped any overt communication with moderns, preferring to have them only listen to and follow sacred scripture, properly interpreted, of course. God's voice has been reduced to paper, and even that paper had to be moderated and deciphered by the proper authorities and intellects. It seemed that direct communication with God was something exclusively for the ancients and uncivilized, while educated Westerners' access to God was mediated and controlled by the intelligentsia. Nobody wanted God in a box, just in a book, especially an expensive one bound in leather with gilt edges, or was that gilt ed edges? It's one of the descriptions of God's word. And it, it's, a, it's, it's a, a theme that actually runs throughout the book that you see coming um, from time to time. And, and I, what the author, I believe, is trying to do is, is trying to say that we should have ongoing communication with God, ongoing relationship with God, which, which are truths. But when you, when you read statements like this, there are some things that should raise some red flags. 
what about scripture that he said would raise a red flag? It's only able to be presented. The, he, the idea, and, and it, this is where understanding his history helps me understand where he was coming from, because there are certainly churches and settings where the Bible is not accessible. And I think he's reacting to those, but there are settings where you're taught that the priest has to be the one to interpret God's word for you, and you have, it, it's not accessible, and you need it to be interpreted for you. But what do we know from Scripture? In John 14, 25 and 26, all this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And as we look through Scripture, and that's just one little verse, um, we realize that we, we can interpret Scripture because we have help of the Spirit living inside of us. The author is indwelling us. Amen? And the author has insight into what it means. The Holy Spirit can help us interpret God's word. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Who's, who's handling the word of truth? You and I. We are handling the word of truth. It, it doesn't have to go through a priest. It doesn't have to be interpreted by, by someone. When I'm up here talking on Sunday morning, I hope you're going home and, and looking up what we're talking about. And I, that's why we would say get some systematic theology. Study. Know what, what's there. Don't take my word for it. I could be wrong. I'm a man. Take God's word for it and get into God's word and study it. Now, inasmuch as he may be talking about those churches where, where that is taught, where the Bible isn't taught and where, where people cannot get into God's word, I would agree with him then, because we should be in God's word. But to say that God's voice has been reduced to paper, I think, really misses the point of God's word. Um, God's word is God's love letter to us. It is his direct, intentional revelation to us. And it should be precious. It should be dear to us. It's not something that just the, the ancients were able to understand, or the ancients and the uncivilized. It's not something that is inaccessible to the moderns and, and civilized, as, as the quote would say. It is just as applicable today as it was when the Holy Spirit wrote it. And it is just as accessible. And it is just as true. This ancient text was written by an infinite, timeless God for every need that he foreknew would ever come up in the history of man. May we not reduce this. At the same time, God wants a living, active relationship. And that's where I think the author was going, is trying to say, if you're just, you can read God's word and not be in love with it. 
You can read God's word as an academic exercise and it can mean nothing. And that's not relationship either. And so when we read something like this from the author, it should raise some red flags, but it should also challenge us, am I reading scripture in a way that's, that's relationally oriented too? Do I know this is a love letter from my God? But it is truth. And my, my truth in God's word is sufficient. God is no longer giving direct revelation about himself. And a quote like this would imply that he is and that the Bible's not done. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Let me read some of these verses as we close. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's the words of, of God, the words of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1, 3, and 4, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Right here. But it should be done in relationship with God. That does not discount relationship. Finally, 2 Timothy 3, 15-17. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Today I end with this. This is the most important book you will ever have in your library. And it is God's love letter to you, wanting relationship. Read it and love it and enjoy it. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, may you give us a love and a thirst for your word. Lord, and may that love and thirst be out of, out of a love for you and in a, a relationship with you and not some academic exercise that means nothing. May our hearts be turned to you. And Lord, as we read your word, I pray that for everyone here, you would open it up into beautiful letters. These are your words to us. You have communicated to us. And you want to continue to communicate. Lord, may we not let trappings get in the way of that. May we not get to a point where we think that we cannot read it on our own and that it has to be interpreted for us. But Lord, may we be in love with your word. Be with us today as we continue about our weeks. May we put into practice our theology and truly show people that we love you. In your name, amen.